0: This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 195. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hood, and I'm here with a very special guest because this is a guest that is from our own community and has been a part of our community for a number of years. I don't know how many years, actually, but this is Stephen Helvig. First of all, say hi to everybody, Stephen. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, so I want to start this interview off just straight from the get-go here. You spent eight years in what I call zombie land. You did just about everything you can possibly do wrong. <laughs> just being fully candid based on our pre-interview. <laughs> you did things, yeah. you had like no clear goals when you started. You had no ambitions, no mentorship, outside help. And what from our, I gathered from our pre-interview, you had tons of low points during that eight-year gap of what I call zombie land. And you were basically just coasting along. And I, I feel like a lot of our listeners are in this phase of their life right now. So before we get into the story of that eight years of zombie land, of just cruising along, maybe not loving your, your career in audio. I want you to tell our audience, first of all, what do you do and where are you now as a business compared to those eight years in Zombieland? Well,
1: I'm a music producer, a studio owner. I do everything from engineering, composing to the final music production, mixing, mastering, kind of a one-stop shop. You know, I would say that at that eight-year mark, I was probably doing like 50K a year and now I'm over, you know, I'm over the six-figure mark and I would say even the first few years after I started turning things around, it was kind of a slow growth. And then it, it really started taking off in the last five years is where it really, you know, the the efforts that I started to put in started to pay off, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I, I believe, I, I can't remember exactly where uh, we came across your story, Stephen, but I believe it was in our Facebook community. You'd posted something about this and I, and I, everyone can resonate with this. It's like you struggle for so long. And again, 50K, by the way, is no, it's no small fee. Like most people would be happy with that. But at the same time, like 50K revenue is not the same as 50K 50K income. That's correct. Especially if you have a studio of my size. Yeah. So speaking of which, give the audience an idea of what your studio setup is like, the size of it and, and everything associated with it. Just so we have the kind of the grasp there.
1: I'm somewhere in between a home studio and a commercial studio. It is in a home. I rent somebody else's home for my home studio. It's a pretty unusual setup. In fact, the the whole studio is, the live room is completely underground and it's an old, it was built as a squash ball court. And the control room that I'm sitting in now uh, looks down into the squash ball court. And the other rooms that I have are converted from like an old rec room. So this house was built like in the late 60s, early 70s. And it was a, uh, You know gym hot tub room squash ball court all underneath the house. It's a really unique kind of layout really cool The live room is is large. It's 28 feet long 18 feet wide with 13 foot high ceilings Which is pretty high considering it's a basement. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, you know the whole studio probably is around 1500 square feet of space. So, you know, when people pull up, they think, "Oh, this is probably a home studio," and, but then when they walk in, they're like, "Wow, I never would have thought this was
0: here." It reminds me a lot of the the studios you have in Nashville here in the neighborhood specifically called Berry Hills, which is where a lot of the the studios congregate in the Nashville area. And so you'll, you'll drive up and it'll just look like a old, like uh, ranch style home. that was like built in the sixties or seventies, like a mid-century style home. And you walk in and it's just gutted and it's got a million dollar build out and it's like beautiful. And it's like, what? You would not see that from the outside. So that's cool. So really quick, before we get into the story there, give us an idea of that 50K. What was the actual take-home pay back then during the zombie land years? Cause I'm actually curious if you don't have to share this, but I'm just kind of curious what that actually amounted to. More like 20K of take-home. Okay. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. pretty brutal.
0: For anyone that was like 50K, that's great. Like that's, this is the reality. Like families can't survive off of 20K. You're married. Do you have any kids, Steven? No kids. Okay. That, that helps. But all right. So let's get into this, the, the juicy part here. So let's start at the point where you actually joined forces with another struggling studio, something like eight years ago. Can you tell us about um, that point? I guess I should
1: clarify a few things I think would be helpful for the whole story is that, so I didn't start, I didn't, you know, just, find an an empty house or whatever and build out a studio, you know, I did definitely didn't start from scratch. The reason I ended up with this place is that when I was in college, I was an artist. I started as an artist and wanted to, you know, I was playing in bands and doing that sort of thing. And I was making like my third record in college. And I met a producer that had this studio. He did the build out. And it was the first time working with kind of an established producer and I just fell in love with the process and we, we spent a lot of, of money on the record and a lot of time here. And while I was doing that, I was really picking up, you know, the basics of pro tools and stuff. He would like stop to go make a sandwich and I'm like, I think I, I can hit record. I'm going to keep, <laughs> I'm going to keep tracking. Well, we made that record when it was done, we became friends. When it was done. I kind of talked him into becoming an intern and then, He let me stick around. I kept learning. I helped him on other projects. And then as I was graduating college, he was moving out of the country. So this wasn't a commercial studio at the time. It was just sort of his personal, this was his childhood home. He built out this studio as a way to like, basically make earn more rent for his mom who still lives here and owns this house. And I just thought what an opportunity. It's an empty space. I can make like there was no website There was no name for the studio or anything like that So I let me start a business while you're gone. You have nothing to lose and i'll just take it from there
0: So you just took this over from scratch. You never actually worked in the studio with him I guess you interned there you worked under him for a while But I guess your student you didn't start until you just took over his space. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that was actually the beginning and he trusted me enough to say, well, sure, if you, you know, if you want to try, go for it. You know, it, there wasn't much of a, like a business structure there or like built in clients or anything like that. So I had a couple bands that I knew that wanted to record with me. And I, I knew enough to like do some really basic stuff. And I actually rented a room behind the studio, like in the house, but just another room behind the, the main areas. And it was basically just the glorified closet. And I lived there and just every day I would go into the studio and work on stuff and, you know, figure it out. And our arrangement when we started was really optimal for me because he said, listen, let's go 50-50. If you don't make any money, if you can't get any bands in, you don't have to pay me anything. And you can use the studio as much as you want. I was living here. I was just keeping it up, keeping it clean and, and doing anything I could to. And I helped him like wrap up projects as he was moving. And then that's how it went for those eight years. But by year seven, year eight, when I did have income coming in, I was paying out 50% of everything I was making. And it was just brutal. It was a great way to start and a terrible way to to grow because it just became defeating and unmotivating to to make more money because I just couldn't keep enough of it to to make anything.
0: Yeah. So 50% of like, let's just call it three grand a month doesn't feel too bad. It's like, it sucks, but it doesn't feel too bad. It's $1,500. That's a pretty good, like not a bad rent for a full studio space in a house with like an old squash court as a live room. But once you start earning close to six figures, like seven, eight, nine, 10 grand a month, all of a sudden that becomes really, really restrictive as a business model. We'll get to, I know you ended up renegotiating your rent. We'll talk about that a little bit, but let's talk about during that period, the eight year span is really what I want to hone in on for this interview, because I feel like There's a lot we can take away from that that i'm gonna calm your zombie years just because I like that term There's no nothing nothing no slight against you for that But that was just kind of like the coasting period that a lot of our audience is going through right now Can you talk about some of the struggles that you had during those? Those days before you really felt like you had a real business I would say that you
1: struggle on all fronts really in some ways the way that I approached it, you know, my my only goal getting started was I just want to be in the music industry. So here I was with a great opportunity. I had access to the studio and right away I was doing it. I was making enough. I mean, yes, living very much in poverty pretty much during those years, but I was making enough. I was doing it and that's what mattered to me. So I think the number one problem was that I kind of, in some ways, made it right away. I was like, oh yeah, this was all I wanted. This is, this is it. I can call myself a producer. I'm good to go. Mission accomplished and just keep doing what you're doing, which was just defeating because I I didn't set any other, you know, higher standards than that. Of course, I wanted to make more money. I wanted to do well. I wanted to stay busy, things like that. But it wasn't clearly enough defined. So among other things, I think that was kind of the first thing. Obviously, just getting enough clients. I built a website and that helped. And because I have a physical site when it comes to people searching for stuff, it helps that Google Maps stuff shows up right away. So I was able to get a good bulk of my clients just from Google searches and that sort of thing. And then people that I knew and referrals, but it was never enough, you know, when you're building, you guys have done episodes on this, when you're building things that's largely word of mouth, it's going to take a long time, which is why I'm on year 14 and I can say, all right, you know, this is working now, (laughs) but if you want to... Have it take 14 years, that's, you know, that's the way to do it. It's one way to go, but I wouldn't suggest it. I didn't have a, you know, I didn't have a real marketing plan outside of create website. Yeah, that's just not enough. And I, I very much firmly believed that if I just worked really hard and I put out really good work, that that would speak for itself. And while there's some truth to that, it's not enough. You have to have more of a plan for reaching people. And, you know, I used social media. I did things, but nothing that was ever that effective and even still struggle today of like making the marketing plans we do more effective. But I would say the, the third biggest thing was honestly just wasn't that good at it. You know, I was I was self-teaching. I, I was able to do projects that were good. Sure. But consistency was a key and primarily I feel like I, I was getting results. My, my clients were happy and everything like that. But the amount of work that I was putting in to those projects to get a good result was unsustainable. I was spending so many unpaid hours beyond the the agreement to just make sure my portfolio turned out well, which is what I needed to do. But it was it was not something that could just keep going on. I was working myself to death. And so I needed to figure out One, how could I just get better at what I'm doing so that the time I put in is more effective? Two, how can I get a more consistent schedule so that I have booked and paid studio time? Because at that eight-year point, when we switched from going 50-50 to me just paying flat rent, it's like, well, now I have to pay these expenses no matter what. Everything's on me. And then three, I need to be keeping really good records and setting goals and making sure i'm looking at these numbers i'm actually taking it seriously every month and i'm saying yes these things are working or no i need to figure something out i would wait until the end of the year to you know filing taxes and then figure out how i'm doing versus just actually looking at everything month to month
0: yeah so we i've got a lot of things to discuss with you i just got bullet points as you're talking there basically you explained what what is the hobbyist versus the business owner <laughs> your your struggles were all based around you being the like hobbyist doing this for fun and i fell into it making money having no clear ambitions or goals can we can we talk about just for a minute not having goals like what would you what would you do differently if you're going back now as far as goals you set for yourself having ambition not just being okay with making just enough to squeak by because I know so much of our audience, their goal, and I've done surveys on this and I've pulled the audience and I've, I've asked questions in the group. And I know that most people, it's just, I just want to make enough to survive. And as, (laughs) as someone who made enough to quote survive, is that enough? Should we have more goals? Should we be more ambitious? Is it selfish to be ambitious like that? It's not. I think it just makes
1: you a better business owner. You know, I, I had to make a switch in my head from being artist who, just wants to be in the music business to business owner. And, you know, I just sort of had like a more bohemian viewpoint on things that I just, you know, I just want to do it for the music and things like that. And it's all about artists being happy. But honestly, when I did switch to being more concerned about, is this business working? I feel like I also got better at serving artists and being able to provide more value and more quality service because I was taking care of myself more. And, That's really important. So in terms of like setting goals, I think the big thing for me was really obvious. And it's kind of embarrassing really to, to admit that, like, just keep good records. I honestly, like, you know, I kept, I kept records, but I wouldn't look at anything really until the end of the year and be like, all right, here's my like torturous days of tax preparation. As I sort through these terrible records, you know, now I have very clear books and every day, if I want, I can go in and see exactly if I'm on track to hit a monthly goal that I might have, whether that's for just revenue coming in or even just tracking expenses, you know, like, Hey, enough's enough. You can only buy so many plugins or software or whatever, you know, like trying to keep expenses down, being able to just look over and over again, like where are my subscription costs going? And if you only review that once a year, I mean, that's still important. It's still helpful, but it was just easier for me to sort of ignore those bigger questions, whereas if I'm looking at it every week, every month, whatever, I can't put it aside. I have to admit to myself, you know, I can't live in this little delusional world of myself that, hey, I'm a music producer. I'm doing this just fine. Everything's going great. So it, whether your goal is a certain number of for for income or if it's output, if it's going to be like, I, I did this many songs or I I took this many gigs or whatever, I just think, you have to clearly define them you need to write them down and then you need to review them often it's so easy to do but it for me it was that that what is the old adage like what gets measured gets managed
0: yes i was literally just trying to think of that quote and i'm like i cannot think of this freaking quote but i'm glad you remember it
1: and it it's so true at least it was for me like i didn't feel like you know it would it's surprising to me looking back how much of a difference it did the more that i just had to look at it that i just had to open my eyes and look at it. It was like, oh, it just way more inspired me to actually make a difference in it.
0: Yeah, and I, I've just noticed this in my own life as I've I've been big on dropping my weight. I'm trying to get back down to my wedding weight, and uh, I have a YouTube video that was like how to actually set goals. It was launched like probably the first video of the new year or in January and one of the things that I've been doing every day is I have to hit 10,000 steps I have to weigh myself every day so I have to see those numbers so that I can actually affect them and then I have to go to the gym a few times a week on average and uh, oh and I have to eat uh, around 2,000 calories a day and and since then like in 3 months I have dropped about 15 pounds, something like that. So I'm, I'm on the, on the way to getting to my original wedding weight, but it's the same in business. When we like, like going back to that quote, what gets, me, uh, what gets measured, gets managed. And part of measuring is also looking at the measurement itself. So like you, you said something that I wanted to touch on. I don't want to, I don't want to stay in the, the land of numbers and measuring and, and record keeping. Cause like, this is, this is the land of boredom, but it's also the land of being a real business owner, which is why Steven makes six figures. And if you're bored by this conversation, it's probably because you don't make six figures and you never will. As long as this bores you, you need to actually pay, pay attention to this stuff. But I do, I do want to talk on this because it can be really easy to, to track those things and then never look at it. So what, what is like your, your method around tracking, measuring, and actually paying attention to some of these things that you are, are tracking so that you know the numbers, you can grow the numbers, and you can actually affect change and not just look at them once a year?
1: You know, for me, it's just pick an accounting service. I use QuickBooks. and most mornings, if I'm just waking up, have coffee, I'll open it up, and I'll just clear out my books, you know, whatever money came in, sort it with the invoices. There's nice little graphs and reports that are easy to generate. so I can see like this is how much money's in this month. This is how much money I've spent. I need to do better, or hey, things are <laughs> on track, you know, whatever. and And then there's obviously, so many things underneath that of like, well, okay, what does that mean? Do I need to send more emails? Because you can measure so many more things inside your CRM or whatever. Or it might be, you know, for me on the measuring thing in terms of like, once I started looking at it, I was going, yeah, but I'm working all the time. Like I am busy. I have clients in, but I still don't, I'm not hitting these numbers. And it was like, well, it's because you're not charging enough. You have to raise rates. As much as I don't want to, you just have to do it. And I had to start looking at for a time, I don't need more, but for a time I I measured things that I was really struggling with. And one of those was doing too many free hours, you know, of like, what, what was I billing for and how long did it actually take? And that was just for self-discipline of like, you can't do that anymore. You have to charge what it takes. And I measured that until I broke that habit and was able to get more efficient with my time, but also get more disciplined with feeling good about charging what what I was worth. And once I got past that, I just stopped measuring it, move on to the next thing. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I think there was one, there's a couple of key things to, to dissect there. One is the fact that you have a daily habit around coffee, which I always love habits around coffee because what you do when you're drinking your coffee dictates how the day will go. But when you're drinking your coffee, you have a daily habit of checking your QuickBooks account, which is just your expenses and your incomes. And, and it's, it's similar to like when I'm logging food after every meal I see how many calories I just consumed because I weigh my food and I'm a nerd like that You know, not everyone does that but I can see like oh my god That was 400 calories for that one thing. My god i'm never eating that again But if I only looked back like once a month at all my food in one go Like I can't do anything at that point. So checking me daily is an important part But I just want to talk about pricing with you. Um, this is not anything to you This is for our audience if you are busy and you never have free time The answer is to always raise your rates period always raise your rates. There's no, there's no, there's nothing you can say to argue that fact back to me. If you're too busy, raise your rates, hundred percent of the time, raise your rates.
1: I don't, when's the last time you raised your rates, Steven? I started to raise them again earlier this year. And I hesitate because a lot of, this is not just even for rates, but a lot of changes that I've implemented over these years. It's kind of like a rolling upgrade. It's never like, boom, now there's this new system in place. It's usually like, okay, i raised rates but it's only on new clients, right? Like the old clients that I see that have been around for a while, like they still have a certain rate. New rates are being tested on the new clients coming in and seeing what reaction I get essentially. And so far so good. People are fine with them and it's like, "Uh, should have done this years ago," you know? So, I've I've tried to speed that up a little bit more in terms of raising rates because I I have different ways of charging for things I do I do a lot of things hourly, but I also do have project rates. So, from project to project, those rates can change. And so I can raise those in different ways. And then I have my hourly rates, which are harder to raise, but I have raised those earlier this year as well.
0: Yeah, so uh, there's, there's a, a trick that's worked really well for me when it comes to raising my rates as a freelancer. And, and this goes back to um, what I learned from running an Air- a six-figure Airbnb. So Airbnb and hotels in general have something called dynamic pricing. And that just means how, how in demand the date is, that's where your price goes up. And so in Nashville, when we have CM, CMT Fest or whatever country music festival they have, we would jack up rates to like three or four times the nightly average. So as a freelancer, what I started doing was when I had someone booking something like three, four, five months in advance, they're going to get my highest rate possible because that far in advance, that's where I have the most freedom and flexibility to test out new rates on these projects. But as it gets closer to the actual date, I start dropping it down to just fill in the gaps. And, and that has worked out so well because- I don't mean drop to like super low numbers, but on average like my rates skyrocketed when I started doing this dynamic pricing type thing. And so if you if you don't have your rates publicly displayed on your website, you can do this. If you have them displayed somewhere, it's really hard to implement anything like this, but that was just something that's really worked well for me and and it works better if I mean it works whether you're doing flat rate or hourly pricing cuz that was I started that when I was doing day rates as a as a music producer and I was charging a, a day rate. So, something to experiment with. So the next thing is you talked about in unpaid hours and improving your skills. And, and I feel like this is another area that are not everyone, but a lot of people struggle with is they are taking for damn ever to do something. And why they're trying to figure these things out is because they suck at what they do. Like there's, I guess I'm trying to beat around the bush, but it's because they suck at what they do. So it's, it's the lack of confidence, lack of ability. And so they dabble trying all these sorts of things out, like in automations and new plugins and they overdo everything. Can you talk about like, what your experience is around that struggle. Cause it sounded like you've had struggles like that, that has eaten up your time and dragged out projects longer than they should be and made you underpaid for what you're doing and how many hours you put into the work, especially during the zombie days as we call them.
1: Yeah. You know, as I got to that sort of quitting point, I just had to take some time off and like self reflect and say, you know, all right, well what's, you know, what's the biggest problem. And one of the things was like just working too much, you know, and, and I, okay, well how do I do less? It's like, I realized that for me, mixing was really, really difficult. It would take me so long to get a mix to sound good. I was, you know, going out to the car to check in a million times. So I just started doing research. You know, I think the, the number one thing is you just have to decide, like, you have to f- somehow figure out what you think your problem is. I mean, if you don't know that you aren't good, then that's going to be a problem. You have to try to be honest. Self-awareness. <laughs> Self-awareness. Yeah. And for me, I thought it wasn't, I felt like, okay, I'm getting good results, but what I could Admit to my self-awareness was like they could still be better and they need to go faster I cannot put this much time into it And so then it was just about doing research on on mixing like why why is this taking me so long and honestly like within a couple Days of just like looking into it. I realized well, I have a problem. I'm I'm trying to swim upstream right now because my room and you can see it, Brian, I've got treatment up now, but when I, there was no treatment in this room. I was just mixing in an untreated room basically. And it was a nightmare and I just was oblivious. I had no idea that that was a real problem. And I, you know, I learned, I got educated about it. It took me a while still to, you know, improve from there. And it wasn't just acoustic treatment. I also signed up for, you know, your basic like educational stuff and, and started learning from other engineers and, and reading more and just like seeking out educational stuff at that point. And that was the first time that I did that. Everything else was just like, I'm just going to be in the studio and keep working at it.
0: Yeah. So what, what made you change? Cause I know that when we, when we talked earlier, there was, it's, it sounded like in, in those zombie years that there were no books consumed, no courses, That you've gone through no self education, no podcasts, and now I know you're a student of the Profitable Producer Course. I know that you're a listener. You said you've listened to pretty much every one of these episodes of the podcast. All Mm hundred, and you'll be at the hundred and (laughs) ninety fifth episode, and so there's a lot of episodes in the backlog. So, what changed to make you actually be a self education first type person like we are? I think just part of
1: it was waking up to the fact that the way I'm doing things doesn't work. It's a little bit about my. My background, I grew up on a farm, actually, in southern Minnesota. My parents are, are still farmers, and I, a big part of, of my youth was working. I worked in barns. I worked in fields. So hard work has never been an issue for me, and I, I enjoy work. I, I work a lot still to this day, but mostly because I, I want to. And I realized that I could work harder and harder and harder, but I wasn't necessarily getting any better. I needed to work smarter. I needed to learn things. And it was really, I think, honestly, probably around that mixing time that I, you know, I need to figure out how to mix faster. I need to, I need to improve this process. I, when I took even just a couple courses, watched some, and it was just, it made such a big difference right away. I was like, what am I doing? There's all this information. I just, I kind of, you know, a little bit of an introvert in terms of, I was totally happy living in my studio 24 seven, doing nothing else. Besides that, just an island, not meeting anybody, not talking to anybody, just dedicated to my projects. It was great, but it was just hard work that wasn't necessarily, it's like being on the hamster wheel, you know, you just have to step off sometimes and assess. And once I figured out that, oh, there's a lot I don't know about this, you know, part of that's that, you know, the guy that I started with, my mentor that had the studio, we did work together for a number of years once he moved back. And I modeled so much after him and I did learn a ton about producing music and how to work with artists and, you know, being in the trenches, stuff like that. But it was one source of information. And if I would have been looking harder at more sources, I would have probably a light bulb might have turned on earlier of like, oh, there might be some things that are missing from this source of information, you know, and that's not to take away from him at all. The way he did things worked for him. And you know, super grateful for what I have learned, but I, I needed so much more. I needed to learn so much more. And I was just sort of modeling everything after what he was doing. And that's not a healthy approach. You should always be questioning. Like, even if you have a mentor that's, that's working well, you should still be seeking out more sources of information. And, you know, because it might challenge something that you thought was the way to go. And there's that for me, that was, that was the key. Once I finally challenged something about how I've done this always, always, and realized, oh, this is better. And actually, I've been doing it quite wrong for a long time. That just opened up the doors. And then I really started seeking out more and more information from there.
0: You said when you got married, how long ago did you get married, by the way?
1: Coming up on three years now.
0: Okay. You said that your wife basically pushed you to become more ambitious. She, she, you said <laughs> that, she, said you, she told you this, you should just quit audio and do something that actually makes money. <laughs> <laughs> or start taking it more seriously, something like something to that effect. What what about that interaction helped you kind of make this this transition from a, a hobbyist who's making money to an actual business owner?
1: As you get older and you you know grow up more and and start looking at your life and, and what you want to be doing with it, you have those kind of conversations more often. And and I, quite honestly, I should have had them earlier. But you know, between her and I, I think she just mostly saw how much I was working and how difficult it was and wanted me just to do better, you know, to, to be happier. It wasn't that I was completely unhappy, but I was unsatisfied, I guess, because I, I, I am very passionate about what I do. And I think if it weren't for her, I'd still just be doing that and probably just be like, yeah, no, it is what it is, you know, and just continue on. And I'm glad that, you know, I think she kind of challenged me of like, are you sure that this is the best that it's going to be? Don't you think it could be better? And I think just her, the pressure, that little bit of pressure and the push was, was really important. And you need people like that in your life to, to challenge your assumptions, you know, and take a new look at things.
0: We keep talking about going from like a hobbyist business, like a hobbyist who's making money to a, a full on business owner. And, and, and hopefully everyone in our who's listening right now has listened back to episode 193 where I interviewed Lydia Kerr. And in that episode, she talked about leveling up from a freelancer to a business owner and the whole episode's basically about that, but she went from like charging two to $500 for projects as a designer to now where she's charging 10 to 20 K per project, making like 20 K a month. So it's a fascinating story if you haven't already heard that episode, but there's something else you said that I wanted to to discuss that was kind of leading to this, this stagnation, or, or I guess just not even stagnation. It was just being okay with not being okay. And that is something called the blue collar mindset. We talked about it uh, on episode 96 called How You're Sabotaging Your Business with These Five Toxic Mindsets. Actually, we replayed it, episode 174. So it's a recent, recent replay as well. Good one to go back to, listen to. But you talked about how you, you grew up on a farm, you were okay with hard work, you were okay with just like putting your head down, getting work done, sitting in the studio every day, or eventually that transition to sitting in the studio every day with your head down doing work and not working smart. It seems like it, that's the blue collar like mindset at its peak where- we're busy busy busy, but we're not getting results. We're not getting progress. We're not growing. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing And i'm glad your wife kind of ha- helped snap you out of that But can you talk about some of the things that you did to start working smarter? I know we've already talked about some of them, but I feel like that's the big the biggest change is when entrepreneurs make that that trend, that snap in their head and, and i'm hoping some people are listening right now that that have that kind of That aha moment that is like I need to, there's ways to work smarter like I don't have to work harder and i'll tell you right now like the years I've made the most money are not the years I worked the hardest. It's the years that I worked the smartest. So talk about some of those work smart, not hard moments that you had as a music producer. Well, let's see. I think that one of the, one of the things that I finally came around to
1: was that I took a look at It was like a year-end thing. I was reviewing my books, looking at my clients, and I, oh, I wanted to see if how the 80-20 principle applied to, to my income and clients.
0: And can you just really quick give everyone the the rundown of what the 80-20 principle is for those who have not heard that episode of the podcast?
1: I don't know if I could even give like a, a great version of it, but essentially it's this principle that you can find a ratio of 80-20, and Brian, maybe you'll correct this later, but in a lot of things, even in nature, and you can find it in business and things, but basically what I was looking for was to see if the top 20% of my clients spent earned 80% of my revenue. And... I did the measurement and it was close. It wasn't perfectly 80-20, but it was like the I think even still to this day like the top 25% of spending clients bring in 80% of the revenue. I just realized that you know, if I just got like two more clients in that in the in the upper tier, I could drop like 400 hours of work. <laughs> and so but there was a thing for for me personally because I I I do really care about about my clients and uh, you know a lot of these people have kept me afloat and i it's not you know the business is important to me but it's not just about business i didn't want to just cut those clients out so what i did was i hired an assistant and i figured out a way to just kind of systemize a big chunk of these clients because a lot of this stuff was smaller budgets easier sessions and i i hired him which i was super nervous about but it was life-changing Just to have somebody else do that work, it ended up being kind of a win-win because I could stop doing that work and focus on the bigger stuff that I needed to focus on. But I didn't have to cut those clients out. I just ended up creating another position for somebody else that was fresh out of college and wanted that kind of work and wanted that experience. And so that was a great way of like, this is just a better way to do things. And then while he was using the studio, I had more time off. I could focus on other things. So that was probably one of the most critical, like work smarter, not harder things instead of just doing all of those clients myself.
0: So most of our audience or a big chunk of our audience, are music producers or have an audio background just because we used to be the six figure home studio pre episode 150. So get into the specifics, man. What did you hire the person to do? What were those smaller projects that were taking up a ton of your time that you needed to get rid of? And what were the projects that were the 25% that were doing really, really well?
1: So I, I work in all genres and I kind of always have, but you know, per your guys' advice about niching down, I started realizing, well, at the very least, I need to niche down my messaging. I need to, even if I'm going to, I can still say yes to whatever I want to say. Things come in the door all the time that, I'm, yeah, sure. That'll sounds fun. Let's do that. But my messaging needs to be specific so that I'm at least attracting the right kind of people. And then if I get something else that I'm not asking for, it's just up to me. If we have space, then sure, let's fill the calendar. So as I was thinking about what I wanted to niche down to. I was also looking at these bigger projects like albums that were, I specialize in doing vocal production. So things that are heavy in vocals and a lot of the projects that were paying more money were, were doing that. They were like very singer oriented, you know, either a pop record or folk or something, but in any case, but I had a ton of hip hop clients and I don't advertise for them. I don't, I don't do anything. They just come in and they fill the calendar and I don't mind doing it. But pretty much all of that process was like just a vocal recording over a beat that's already been done by somebody else. Mix and master all happens in like two or three hours. Done. But what I realized was that it was just an underserved community and there was a ton of demand and it was a way to just, it kept my doors open, you know, people were willing to do it and we're really grateful and, you know... We were doing, you know, kicking out a maybe above average product for what they were getting elsewhere, or they were just getting turned away. Other studios weren't even taking it in. And it grew on its own without me trying to do. And it just became like, well, now I'm all of a sudden like known in my town as doing all this hip hop stuff, which I don't want to do. And it's really hard to scale because it's just all these short sessions. They don't need full days ever. And when you own a studio, you, you want to fill up the whole day. And so anytime somebody books like a two hour session in the middle of the day, you mess that up. And so I, I was like, ah, I, I need to somehow, I don't want to stop doing this because there are clients that I enjoy and it, I think it's an important thing to still provide. So that's what I did. I hired the assistant to take on pretty much all the hip hop stuff. And what I did is I just created a, a template because I realized I had done like probably a thousand songs or something like that, at least. And I started realizing like this is so repeatable and this would be the easiest thing to teach because I have this template up that's ready to go and we can get a really high quality production out in two to three hours and that people love enough to tell everyone else about (laughs) and come in where I haven't even been advertising this and it's, and it's taken off its whole thing. So yeah, just template taught him, had him sit and watch a bunch of sessions and, and gave him a checklist of like, this is how, This is how it gets tracked. We even filmed like a session so he could watch that. This is how it's tracked. Then these are the steps that you do for editing. And then these are the steps you can take for mixing. So because mixing is more of like an art where it's kind of hard to teach and systemize. But again, because we were kept, and this is the benefit of niching, you know, if, if this was our specialty and we were just doing hip hop, we could really, you know, really dialed it in where it's like, we pretty much always do it the same way and get really good results. And so it was just easy to teach, whereas a lot of the other stuff I'm doing is is less specific because the genres do change. And, you know, you go from a band to a solo artist with session musicians. There's different processes that I realized I could just hand it off. And it made it basically possible to create a job for my assistant with that could (laughs) self-perpetuate. You know, I don't have to do anything. It's just handing over a segment of the business that he can keep running and it makes money and it pays his salary.
0: Yeah, I feel like in the, in the recording world, in a system that does something like that with a well-systemized, well-oiled machine type process driven service is the closest we can get to passive income as uh, freelancers. And, and so that, that was discovered by the 80-20 principle. And I just want to talk on that really quick just to anyone who's still not 100% sure what that means. It is a principle that just states 80% of the results come from 20% of the efforts. And so what Steven realized was that 80% of his income was coming from about 20, 25% of his customer base, which also meant the inverse was true. That also meant that 80% of his time was probably taken up from 20% of the projects that were maybe some of the hip hop projects, maybe some of these smaller nickel and dime type projects. And so he hired out somebody to to take over that. He made a really good process here. And I had that exact same experience in 2014. The first time I did an 80, 20 analysis of my business, actually it was 2015, I looked back at my 2014 earnings and I looked, I had earned 122,000 and some odd change that year in 2014. And I realized that 60%, this was not a full 80-20, but it was close. 60% of my income had come from mixing and mastering services. And I had only spent about 20% of my time on those services. But then I spent 80% of my time doing full tracking production, mixing mat, like lodging bands in the studio, dealing with a bunch of bullshit, And that only equated to like, 40% 40% of my income. So what I ended up doing is I, I couldn't systemize that out. I had bands living at my studio. I was fully producing them every day, being there in the thick of it, like dealing with their drama or whatever. It wasn't all bad, but I just wiped that service out and I stopped recording bands in 2015 and I haven't looked back since. And so it was incredible being able to shift all in on mixing and mastering in my studio. And from that point on, my, my income has skyrocketed. So it is a great exercise for anyone to do right now. If you haven't done it in a while, this is something you should probably do every year is analyze in your business what are the things that are taking up a ton of your time that are not giving you a good return on that time. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine, so you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere. Because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems, you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com coach. That's the number six figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. So just to kind of shift gears here, man, I want to talk about marketing just a little bit. I, I know this is not necessarily your specialty and, and I can say that because you spent eight years in zombie Land, and again, <laughs> Zombieland is that, that time in your life when you're not making enough to, to thrive, you're making just enough to survive, you're making basically enough to kind of like wander the earth as a zombie, you know, like you can, your body's animated, but their soul's not there. I'm making this really dramatic. It wasn't that bad. I'm sure. (laughs) But, but you survived what I call the word of mouth death trap. And we've talked about this on an episode uh, recently back in episode 182, just called the word of mouth death trap and how to avoid it. But just long story short, the word of mouth death trap is people who always hear from everyone that my number one source of clients is word of mouth. And so they just default to that being their client acquisition strategy. And that's kind of what you were doing. And you, it took you eight years But you eventually got to the point now where word of mouth is your main source of clients. But one of the things you talked about really early on, I don't know if anyone caught it, was like you had a full like Google listing up. And we were talking uh, off air about how you have like something like 60 something, 70 reviews on there at this point, which I think is really, really good social proof that says like Steven Studio is an A plus great studio compared to all these other like pleb studios who have no reviews or like three reviews can you talk a bit about your process for first getting that Google listing up there? Because I, I couldn't even tell you to do that. I guess there's a Google, you can Google that. But second, your process for actually getting reviews.
1: Yeah, the Google listing is actually, I mean, it's, it's fairly easy. And I don't know exactly how it would work if you don't have a physical location. But when you do have a physical, physical location, it's, it's, it's as simple as just saying, hey, I have a business at this address. And you create an account and you set it up. And it's actually a really kind of big advantage because a lot of times when people search, if if somebody's just searched recording studio, Google's going to prioritize actual physical locations and show you maps results first.
0: Yeah. And I can attest to that because I was actually looking for, I was working with somebody, we were looking up studios in Boston together and all the top results were the actual Google listings. And then even like the number one search result in the actual like Google search results, like not the not the map listings, but the actual like typical top results were buried way down the page because Google really does, uh, prioritize the ones that show up on Google maps first on, on that type of search.
1: Yeah. And you know, when I, when I started the the first company, I partnered up that when I built that website and got that Google listing up, that's pretty much how I got most of my business. And then it, it was also word of mouth, but a lot of it was just Google searches. Now, you get a lot of calls of stuff that you don't want with that kind of thing because you get the whole internet just calling you asking, can I come in in like five minutes and record? It's like, no, you, let's schedule something at a time. But, you know, so creating the listing is is pretty much as easy as setting up an account and uploading your information. There's a little verification process, but if you can create an Instagram account, you can create a business Google listing. And I do, I'm quite sure you can still have a listing too, even if you don't have a physical location. I just don't know how it's prioritized with maps. But in any case for getting reviews for it. You know, I always ask at the end of a project, especially when you, you know, they hear their mix or it's done they're at the height of excitement. That's the best time to ask for a review, but it usually takes reminders. A lot of people don't do it right away. And so you just have to kind of keep following up. We finally built as part of our, you know, systems improvements over the last couple of years. We, we use an app called twist that we do all of our messaging with clients. It just helps us kind of can work as a to-do list when people send in a a revision or or some question about their project. But what's cool about every artist has their own channel and inside their channels, then we can just, you know, chat like normal. But I also have threads in each channel that are just default threads that everybody gets. And one of them is reviews with all the links to everything. So everyone always has that and every time they're in their channel checking out a mix or putting things in, they're going to see the reviews thread. Oh yeah, I haven't done that yet. I should probably do that. And it's it's just convenient, right? It's a constant reminder. It's kind of in the background and then I can follow up with them when I send a mix like, "Hey, go check out the reviews thread. Please leave us a review on one of those platforms."
0: And that does really help. Yeah, so twist for anyone who's not following along is it's like Slack. Everyone knows Slack at this point, I feel like, or Discord. It's like those apps, but it is slightly different. We actually use it for FilePass. It's really handy for how we work within FilePass, because Trevor, my co-founder and I and our support, like we all work on different schedules and at different times. So it's, it's a little different than Slack, which is like really like super real time chatting back and forth, which I think would be a nightmare for studio owners because I don't want to get into necessarily a chat conversation with my clients. It turns it into more like a, it feels like Slack where it's like beautiful looking and modern software but it it acts more like an old school message board where you have threads and conversations within those threads and so it's it's what they call asynchronous i think is the term that the silicon valley's latched onto where it's basically not at the same time it's meant to be you You reply on your own time and it has a wonderful threaded response within there. And I just love that you put, I didn't even know you could do default threads. I use, I've been using it for like two years now. I didn't know you could put default threads into channels. That's a, that's a great strategy for that.
1: You, I mean, we have to manually create them. We just have like a copy and paste from a note and then we we drop them in. Whenever we create that thread, we just copy paste.
0: Well, it takes like 10 seconds. It's not a big deal, but that's a, that's a smart way of doing it. So. I like that. Do you do anything else as far as follow-ups? Because I know that when we got married, my wife and I got married in 2019, March 2nd, and we had an incredible experience with our wedding DJ. And, and so he, he had to follow up multiple times for me to actually leave him a review, even though he did an incredible job, like a perfectly flawless job at our wedding, not a single bad song played, nailed every music cue, like, Awesome, dude. Kept the, the dance floor going the entire time. It was so fun. And this was a dry wedding, by the way. So that's a really hard thing to do, to have a, like, a really good dance floor when you have a dry wedding. But, because I don't drink and you know, whatever, so, and, and conservative parents, families. But he had to remind us like multiple times over a many month period. And he had to like hit me up with texts. And he had, he had a pretty well-oiled process for getting that review. Do you do anything like that? Or is that, do you feel like that's overkill?
1: <sighs> yeah, I don't. Although
0: I probably should, because I don't think there'd be anything... I never, he, I never felt overbearing. It was like, it was just every now and again, he would ping me to remind me like, might be a month between. And I would feel bad because I hadn't done it, but I just wouldn't have been at a spot where I could have done it immediately. And then it slips my mind. And then another month would go by and he'd ping me again about it. And then eventually I left one and I put all of our wedding photos in there, which is part of the reason it took so long because I wanted like photos of everyone on the dance floor just so it made the review look better. And like, so it was just, it was one of those things. Like I, I try to remind people, In our audience, at least that you can follow up for things like this, for review requests, for even referral requests, or just following up with past clients to see if they need more work done like six, eight, 12 months later, you can keep following up and they don't care. It's not, they don't feel like you're bothering them.
1: Yeah. I, I do some follow up and that was, again, one of those things that I had on like a, on my measuring, you know, as I would look at stuff daily was, this was a weekly thing that I looked at, but one of those things was, well, how many reviews am I getting? And I think I tried to get one per week if I could. And sometimes that was hard. Just depending, like a big project, you get one review and it takes a year or something, you know.
0: But then you do like ten hip hop products projects in a week, and all ten of them leave reviews. Right. So I, I I did stop
1: measuring that one because I felt like I got to a number of reviews where I was okay, but. But since I stopped measuring it, I've the I don't follow up as much anymore. But that was that would be a reminder for me, like I haven't gotten one, and we would kind of make that between when I say we, my assistant and I, just like a goal where it's like, all right, we're under on reviews, so now we force ourselves to do more follow ups because we just aren't getting them. People aren't doing them naturally enough.
0: So keeping the honestly keeping these numbers top of mind are so important, and and it's funny you said that we we used to really take our our podcast reviews seriously and our ratings and reviews on iTunes because that's a really good gauge of like how big a podcast is, how successful it is. And that helps get guests on. And we stop paying attention to that. And because of that, like our reviews flatline. So this is uh, this is my reminder to myself to remind you that if you are listening on any platform, leave us a rating, not even a review, just, just put the, put the, put the dots on how many stars you like us, whether it's one or five stars, do it right now. If you're on Spotify, they actually have reviews and our ratings in Spotify. Now go do that. And if you're on another app, go to, go to iTunes and do it. Anyways, Continuing on what you were saying, man, (laughs) (laughs) self service there. No, it's, but it's true. I mean,
1: and even, even follow ups like for for clients and stuff, like it used to be before I implemented a CRM, you know, I'd I'd respond to an email, whatever. And then I would maybe follow up once, maybe twice at most if I really wanted that project. And if they weren't hitting me back, I would just stop. It's like, all right, on to the next thing. And, you know, got encouragement. And you guys, I think you, Brian, at one point had said like, maybe in a CRM episode about how, like, how much your income increased once you did like 10 follow-ups or something like that.
0: 50% of my income came from like follow-up six or greater.
1: Yeah, and that blew my mind. I was like, all right, I'm going to try following up at least four or five times now, you know, like baby steps, right? <laughs> and, and even that was like, holy crap, I, you know, if you, people can tell you things and you can believe them. It's like when you listen, I listen to the podcast like a lot of you out there and go, oh, yeah. All right. That's cool. That's something I can do. But then that laundry list gets so long of like things. (laughs) So just baby steps are fine. And that's kind of where I got where it's like, all right, well, let me just try to do a little bit better. Let me just try to do four or five follow ups, because I don't know if I can get to 10 without like really feeling cringy about it. And because I haven't developed that system yet, I don't have like enough of a follow up process to have 10 original ways of following up <laughs> and so let me just try a little bit and even a little bit has been successful it's like okay well now it just helps you get to the next step i'll get to six i'll get to eight and i'll I'll develop a better way to get there like i'm the type of person that wants to do a process really well if i'm going to do it at all and so it's really hard to just kind of step into something and be like eh, i don't know if this is really working you know but sometimes you just have to do it that way, even, you know, just stumble forward or fail forward or whatever, you know, like I'm the same way. Yeah, those little steps. It's like because that's what you go. Oh, there's there's truth to this. It's not like I doubted it in the first place, but it's almost like you have to see the proof and then it's easier to like really come up with a a full system for it.
0: Yeah. So in in my life, I'm the same way where I, I feel like I can't get into something. If I'm going to dabble, I have to like go hard at it. And and so a lot of our audience is the same way some people are like great at dabbling and honestly to me dabbling isn't really that effective Like you have to to go all in with something or else you get a bunch of little half-built bridges everywhere Which is its own problem but there's um For anyone right now who is who is like steven where you have like you listen to this podcast regularly You have all these like mental thoughts of like damn that's cool I should do that or I need to do that And you have this long laundry list of things that you need to do and you don't know how to prioritize I would really encourage you to go back and listen to episode 189. It's called the five business bottlenecks holding you back from hundred K per year. That episode helps you prioritize those things because there's literally only five major parts of your business. And only one of those five parts is an actual bottleneck right now in your business. So you can put everything else on your laundry list aside, except for things that fix that one bottleneck. And once you open up that one bottleneck in your business, something else naturally becomes a bottleneck. And that's where you can go find the next thing on that laundry list of things to do that fixes that next bottleneck. So it's a really good episode. It's one of my favorites I've done in a while. So I really encourage everyone to go back and listen to that. Just to wrap this up, I think it'd be interesting or good to know, what other numbers do you track and look at? Because I, I'm fascinated by this conversation of just numbers staying top of mind because what gets measured gets managed. That's kind of the theme of this episode in some degree other than the Zombieland thing. Do do you have like multiple numbers that you look at regularly? You said the reviews is to be weekly, your expenses and incomes. You look at daily when you're drinking coffee, hopefully good coffee and not trash coffee. I've been on AeroPress for like a decade, man. Ah, good, good, good. You know what I got recently? I just got this in this week. This is a new thing. Now everyone is going to go order this on Amazon. I should have an Amazon affiliate link for this. Uh, I'm not, I'm just going to tell you to go order it and just recommend. It's called the Clever Dripper. It is everything good about a drip coffee with the full immersion of an AeroPress. So it's like you fill the chamber up a it actually steeps in there and then it has this little mechanism. So when you put it over a cup, then it starts to drip through the filter. Fascinating, really good coffee. And it's the only kind of quote pour over that I would ever have. So there's my uh, coffee. Uh, by the way, if people that don't know, I'm a big coffee person. i roast my own beans and I'm a nerd over that stuff. But continue on. What numbers do you track? We're off of coffee now. Um, let's
1: see. Most At this point, we're kind of shifting right now because I I was tracking a lot of numbers that I'm not entirely convinced are worth tracking anymore. So I'm sort of reevaluating, but...
0: Vanity metrics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and just, well, you know, I feel like whatever you track needs to lead to something. And there were some numbers that we were tracking that are nice to know, but I didn't necessarily have a way of, like, changing anything about it yet. So... It's like, well, it's not really worth the time that it takes to track it until I'm prepared to do something about it. The thing I watch the closest is just how much money is coming in and how much I'm spending. Because it's really easy to spend money on gear or software or things like that. And I try very hard at this point to spend as little as possible on that kind of stuff and just focus on the work. Do you have gas? Gas.
0: Gear acquisition syndrome?
1: (laughs) No. No, I, I
0: I don't really like gear that much. Oh, okay, you're one of us. Okay, good, good, good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've got some some decent stuff, but it's for me the my my weakness is is buying plugins and software. That's where I I just have to stop myself and and keep a limit on stuff. But yeah, so I watch income and expenses probably the closest, and then I watch a lot of like small numbers. One is how many leads do I have per week, because if they start slowing down naturally, if I'm then I need to go out and send out more emails if I'm doing cold outreach or, or even just like, all right, I'll send out a newsletter to all my past clients just to remind them that I'm here and say hello to people. And usually somebody will say, oh, you know what? I need to book a session, by the way. You know,
0: um, top of mind. Staying top, top of, of mind. mind is powerful.
1: Yep. And along that line, the other numbers we track are kind of based on marketing stuff, like how many reviews have we gotten? Another thing will be how many posts have we done? this week or month for my assistant, just to make sure that we're still, because our social media is not big. We have maybe like 800 or 900 followers. It's small, but it doesn't matter because of the people that are following us, they're, they're spending money with us and we don't need to have a huge reach. It'd be nice, nicer, of course, to have a bigger reach, but we just want to keep hitting the people that already know us and want to work with us. And they kind of do a lot of the work for us if we keep them interested.
0: Can I, can I, can I push back on something really quick? Cause this is uh, this is an area that I think a lot of people need to a reality check on this. Um, what city are you in? I'm outside the twin cities. Okay. So you're in like St. Paul, Minneapolis kind of area up there. And so in that area, 900 artists is a lot of artists, like bands and artists in that little area. It's not a, a huge area. It's a metropolitan area, but it's not huge. So like, there's a couple of things that like when people say they don't have a ton of followers, and they have eight or 900 followers. I'd be like invite them all over to your studio right now (laughs) and tell me that that's (laughs) not a lot of people. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like anyone right now who feels like they don't have, because they don't have 10,000 followers or 20 or a hundred or whatever, like you feel like it's not worth posting on social media. If you have like 20 followers, it's worth posting because you stay top of mind with 20 of your potentially maybe ideal clients that are following you who will eventually come back to you and hire you again. If they are top of mind, if you're top of mind, whenever it comes time to make the hiring decision. So like social media is important and, and that is no small feat to get eight hundred or nine hundred followers of your ideal clients for your studio.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And the reason we track it is because we know it's effective. Even if some of it's hard to to measure exactly, because you know, I for for us, we don't have like a, a ton of people, you know, commenting or anything. But we are still very careful to stay posting and and keep people knowing that hey, we're doing this. This is what's going on in the studio, whether it's through stories or posts. I know that it works because people use it as just like. Verification they might still go to the website and fill out the contact form and hit us up through that, but a lot of them are still at least checking to see like does this look like trash or does this look legit on our Instagram? and uh, I think you guys did an episode on this too where it was like if you're not going to be super active on social media and you know make that your 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 main marketing scheme, at the very least you need to have your page look good and serve as kind of a landing page or a website that can answer some questions. And so ours is entirely set up like a website, you know, our highlights. It's like one of our highlights is just reviews. One of our highlights is just like portfolio. One of our highlights would be maybe some different services. So, and then everything, like every post that we have is got music in it. It's, it's basically the whole feed is just a portfolio.
0: Yeah. So you're referring to episode, episode 131, where we had Brandon Brown back on the podcast on how to set up your Instagram account for success. I believe that was the episode where we talked about the Instagram landing page and this is for anyone who doesn't want to be on that constant posting cycle just setting up your top your top posts in in different ways but also Lydia Kerr on episode 193 that I just referred you to a, a while back in this interview she talks about in her Instagram feed everything in the Instagram is created for her, her future clients, not for the people who follow her. It's really interesting how she talked about that. So go back and listen to that that episode if you haven't already, but people will go and look at your, your Instagram and make a decision and then maybe contact you through some other means to actually do a court request. So it's, it's an important part of the customer journey. And you'd be surprised
1: how many people will reach out to me, you know, if I'm catching up with somebody and be like, Hey, it looks like you guys are really busy in the studio or whatever. And it's like, no, the schedule is the exact same as it's always been. We're just now showing it. We're just posting it. And that makes a lot of a big difference in people's minds, you know, of what they're going to talk about and how they, how they view you, how successful you are, what kind of fit you're going to be.
0: All right, man. So I, I think it's a good place to wrap this interview up, but I, I just love that. I love the journey, man. I love, I love that you, I hate that you had to go through the eight years of Zombieland to finally get to the six-figure point, but I'm glad that you actually stuck it out. And I'm hopefully that this conversation has been encouraging for anyone right now who is in the thick of, of that sort of struggle. I hope that people understand that they need to make that transition to a serious business owner and not just stay in the the world of a hobbyist who's just happy sitting in their cave, not going out in the world, not having outside influence, being stuck in that blue collar mindset. Hopefully uh, people got a lot out of this. So Stephen, where do you want people to go to connect more with you if they want to ask you questions or uh, just say, Hey, or say, thanks, or say, screw you guy for making me look bad. Where where can they go (laughs) if they wanted to connect with you?
1: Helvig Productions is on Instagram at Helvig Productions. There's also the website. Feel free to to send us a message. But I'm also part of the the community on Facebook, so you can always uh, tag me there, and I'll I'll try to to be less of a lurker and more of a contributor (laughs) going forward. But thanks for having me. It's been great. And to everybody out there that that feels like this story was helpful or relatable in any way, just hang in there. It's okay if you don't. If you're making all the mistakes, I still feel like even today, like there's so much I could talk about what i feel like is not going well or like that i still could do better the the advice that i haven't figured out how to you know to take yet but just pick one thing and you make those little marginal improvements and it will get you
0: there if you can hang in there